I uh, am glad that I get to preach this morning, but I almost hated to shut down the the conversations, the fellowship that's happening. Um, It's a beautiful thing to see all of you connecting, and um, I pray being encouraged and drawing nearer to the Lord together this morning. Um, But God has called me to preach this morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Nathan Smith, and I'm one of three pastors here. And we are continuing on this morning in our preaching series through the book of 2 Thessalonians. We've preached through chapter 1, and this morning we're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to read the passage here in just a few minutes. But I want to start today by reading a list of a few names. Joshua Harris. Derek Webb, Rhett and Link, Abraham Piper, Michael Gunger. And I could go on, but many of you will recognize these as the names of some fairly well-known people who at one time professed to be Christians but have now rejected the faith. Some of them have moved on into a kind of nebulous, unorthodox spirituality, Others of them have rejected spirituality altogether and are just highly skeptical of the idea of there even being a God. And most of them, along with quite a number of others like them, have been very vocal and public about how and why they have abandoned Orthodox Christianity. And having left the faith themselves, many of them seem to want to use their platform to convince others that they should walk away from the faith also. And as I'm sure many of you are aware, as uh, everything now in the world seems to have a potential for trending on social media, one of the effects of these public apostasies, these public walking, uh, walkings away from Christ, is that uh, apostasy has now become kind of trendy, as if walking away from Jesus is the cool thing to do. The truth is, there is actually nothing new under the sun, rebelling against God is not new. Apostasy is not new. It's been happening in the church since the beginning of the church, in fact. Uh, We might think of Judas Iscariot as kind of the prototypical apostate. He appeared to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, but under the influence of Satan, he fell away and eventually, as we know, betrayed Christ. And we read about a man named Demas, in 2 Timothy and in Acts, Demas was one of the Apostle Paul's missionary partners for a time, but he deserted Paul and apparently left the faith altogether because, as the Apostle Paul says, Demas was in love with this present world. And it wasn't just isolated individuals. Uh, the Apostle John in 1 John wrote about those more people, not just one, but, but perhaps many people, those who went out from us, that it might be, be, become plain that they are all not of us. So this apostasy, this walking away from the faith, walking away from Christ, it's been happening since the beginning of the church. It's happened throughout the history of the church. It's happening now, and it will continue to happen until the Lord returns. And in fact, as We saw last week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll look at it again today. One of the things that must precede the coming of the Lord is a massive turning away from Christ by those who had initially appeared to belong to him. 
And knowing these things, knowing that this is going to be happening, it should sober us, but it should also help to keep us from being shaken when we see it happening. And so I want to invite you to grab your Bible and open up to 2 Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 2, and I'm going to ask you to stand. Alan, you might just try turning it down. I'll just talk louder, and maybe the ringing will stop. Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's pray. God, we believe this is your word, that it is for us as your people, and so we ask that your spirit would come and Illuminate it for us. Shine on our hearts so that we receive the truth that you have for us in this, your gracious word to us, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So this is kind of a part two. Uh, Last week, Jason preached a message through this same section. And in that message... He showed us that the Thessalonian church needed to have their doctrine regarding the return of Christ to be corrected. There was an error, but that they also needed their minds steadied, their faith strengthened, their hearts stirred up to hope in Jesus more. And Paul's primary aim in this section in verses 1 through 12, as really in this whole letter, is to cause the church to be more firmly established in the hope of our coming Lord And Jason reminded us that in order to be more firmly established in that hope, we all need to be careful of our doctrine, that we all need to be on guard against deception because the spirit of the Antichrist, that mystery of lawlessness that Paul writes about in this chapter, it's already at work 
in the world and in the church. So we must be on guard. And the bulk of Jason's message really focused on verses 1 through 8, demonstrating the character, the ways, the activity, and the destiny of that man of lawlessness, who explained is also called the Antichrist, this one who will be revealed by God before the Lord returns. He's the one who will infiltrate the church with deception, eventually setting himself up as an alternate Christ, a false alternate Christ, as one to be worshipped. And this man of lawlessness is the one whose deception will lead to a massive rebellion, as we see in verse 3. That's an apostasy, apostatizing, a falling away of many who up until that time had claimed to be legitimate Christians, followers and worshipers of Jesus. And so that, uh, that was really, verses 1 through 8 is kind of where Jason focused. He got into um, the rest of the verses a little bit, but verse 9 really acts as a transition, shifting the focus from that man of lawlessness onto those who will follow him, those who are part of that great falling away that will happen when the Lord returns, before the Lord returns. And in verses 9 through 12, we see the deception, the desire, and the deserved end of those who follow the man of lawlessness. And so that's how we're going to break this down. The deception, the desire, and the deserved end of those who follow the man of lawlessness, this Antichrist. And the first thing we see in these verses, in verse 9, is that those who reject and rebel against the truth open themselves up to more and more deception. Look again at verse 9. It says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Now, many times when the Apostle Paul says the truth, it's really his shorthand way of saying the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ. And that's the case here. He's talking about those who refuse to love the truth, not generally, but specifically the truth about Jesus. The truth of the gospel is what they refused to love. And we'll look more closely at that in the next section. But for now, I want you to notice that the wicked deception of the man of lawlessness, as it's empowered by Satan, is for those who refused to love the truth of the gospel. It is effective for them. It will deceive them. So the man of lawlessness, when he's revealed, will be empowered, it says, by Satan to do signs and wonders. And when it says false signs and wonders, we shouldn't think of that as if these are fakes, as if they're just illusions. The idea is actually that the signs and wonders are are real. They're not just illusions, but that what they point to is false. They're intended by Satan to demonstrate that the man of lawlessness is Christ, but he's not. He's a false Christ. He's an anti-Christ. And the fact that someone can be empowered by Satan to work in this way, it shouldn't really shock us. Jesus actually warned his disciples that this would happen in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 24 says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and, listen, perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. And so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. 
They say, look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. Jesus told us this beforehand. And so while Paul's assertion here in verses 9 and 10 about uh, what this man of lawlessness will be able to do, it, it may be disconcerting to us, but it shouldn't be shocking. It shouldn't surprise us. But what might be shocking in this passage is that that deceptive activity of the man of lawlessness, empowered by Satan to do signs and wonders, is not only permitted, but is actively sent by God. Look at verse 11. It says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. This strong delusion is talking about what's described in verse 9, that the man of, this man of lawlessness who performs signs and wonders. In fact, the, the word translated strong in verse 11 is the same Greek words that is translated activity in verse 9. These are our parallels. A more literal translation of the phrase in verse 11 would be, God sends them an activity of error. This activity of Satan, the activity that empowers these deceptions, is actually sent by God. That's what verse 11 is saying. And that might be shocking to us, but this actually isn't the first. It's not the only time in Scripture where we see God sovereignly working through a spirit of deception in this kind of way. One of the most clear parallels is in 2 Chronicles 18. And just to kind of bring you into the story, this passage relates where God carries out judgment on the wicked king Ahab. Uh, Ahab was extremely wicked. He was murderous. He was idolatrous. He not only uh, turned away from God himself and began worshiping idols with terrible acts of worship, but he was also leading the people of God to turn away from God and turn to idols. God was actually very patient with him. God gave him many chances to repent. He showed him mercy, but Ahab continued in his rebellion, and eventually reached the point where the Lord said, time's up, no more chances. He determined to end Ahab's life in battle, and he revealed to a prophet named Micaiah how he would bring this about, and Micaiah, in the passage we're going to read in Second Chronicles 18, is declaring to Ahab this vision that God had given to him. Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he, this is the Lord, he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. And then Micaiah is speaking to Ahab. He says, now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. And how does Ahab respond to this? Well, Ahab demonstrates how someone who is set on rebelling against God is unable to receive the truth. He doesn't want 
the truth. So he swallows the lie, even though he's been told, this is a lie. You're going to be hearing a lie. He's told that, and yet he wants to believe it. And so he swallows the lie that's told to him by these other prophets all the way to his own destruction. Ahab chooses to ignore God's true prophet. He goes into battle, and he is killed, just as the Lord had justly condemned him to do. And so this, in Second Chronicles, in our passage in Second Thessalonians, this reveals a sobering biblical reality. It is sobering that those who rebel against God can reach a point, even while they are still alive, where God condemns them and says, no more chances. I'm going to actually actively work to bring about your destruction. This should sober us. And it should also sober us to see that those who reject the truth actually enslave themselves to deception. Their hearts are set on being deceived. They don't want the truth. They want the lie. They've convinced themselves that they're not believing a lie. They've convinced themselves that what they believe is true, but they're actually believing a lie. They actually desire to be led to follow the Antichrist. This is their desire. This is the desire of rebels, those who rebel against Christ. And one way to look at God's sending of the man of lawlessness to deceive the apostates, you can look at it as a test that reveals the desires of their hearts. In Proverbs 17, verse 3, it says, The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. So that proverb is saying that just as the crucible is the proper place to test silver, to reveal really what's in it, any impurities in it, what is, is this genuine silver? The furnace is the fitting place to test gold. In the same way, the only proper and fitting tester of human hearts is the Lord. It's the prerogative of our Creator to test our hearts. And we see this many times throughout Scripture, where God is testing people, especially His covenant people, those who claim His name. One place in Scripture that pretty closely parallels this passage in 2 Thessalonians is Deuteronomy 13. And here God is speaking to the Israelites through Moses. And he says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I think that you can see that this is very similar to what we have in 2 Thessalonians. It doesn't say that, um, that God actively causes these signs and wonders to come true that this false prophet has declared will happen. But we know that at the very least, God sovereignly ordains that they will come true, that there will be an opportunity for his people to discern in the face of what looks like a miracle, am I going to follow God or am I going to follow this false prophet to worship this false God? God tests his people 
It's very similar to 2 Thessalonians, except they're, in 2 Thessalonians, we, we already have the results of the test. It, it tells us that they do not love the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul. The test of this powerful delusion, it reveals that the hearts of those who rebel against Christ have a deep distaste for the truth. When Paul says in verse 10 that they refused to love the truth, he literally says they did not welcome the love of the truth. They had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they didn't want to love it. Their desire was to reject it. They had no pleasure in it. And in fact, as verse 12 says, they had pleasure in unrighteousness. So they didn't have an intellectual problem. They weren't struggling to understand the gospel. They understood the claims of Christ on their lives, and they found them distasteful because those claims are contrary to their love of sin. And we see this today. Many of those uh, well-known figures that I mentioned earlier who've rejected Christ um, had an adulterous affair or decided that they wanted to embrace a homosexual lifestyle before they rejected the rest of Christianity. And even for those who didn't so openly adopt a sinful lifestyle, there are usually hints of an underlying pride and self-worship that really betrays the real problem. The true obstacle to faith is that they have pleasure in unrighteousness. And as we see in 2 Thessalonians, God often gives those who despise the truth exactly what they want. They desire to believe the lie rather than the truth. It's what they want, so that's exactly what God gives them. For those who follow the spirit of the Antichrist, rejecting Christ because they would rather embrace deception, deception is what they get. God gives them what they most truly desire. But God doesn't just give them what they want. He also gives them what is just, what is right, what is fitting. For God to send them a strong delusion, that is a just and a deserved consequence for their sinful rejection of the truth. They not only get what they desire, they get what they deserve. And in this, we see that the effectively deceptive power of the Antichrist is not just a test that's sent by God to reveal their hearts. It's also a judgment that's sent by God to demonstrate that they deserve condemnation. So if we would ask, why would God send a delusion? Why would God send this man of, of lawlessness who's going to, to have this power to, to, to do signs and wonders? Why would God do that? We're not left to wonder about that. The answer is there at the end of verse 10. This man of lawlessness who's empowered in this way to deceive is sent by God to deceive those who are perishing. This is verse 10, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. And the beginning of verse 11, it really doubles that emphasis. Verse 11 starts with a therefore, and it, it doesn't actually start a new sentence in the Greek. It's, it's literally for this. For this, God sends them a strong delusion. The this is in verse 10. It's because they refuse to love the truth. For this, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is 
false. In response to their rejection of the truth of Jesus, God sends them a strong delusion. And God's initial purpose for sending this is so that they will be further hardened in their unbelief. That's the second half of verse 11. So that they may, they may believe what is false. And God's intent for that hardening is in verse 12. It's in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this sending of a strong delusion by way of the man of lawlessness is God's just judgment on those who reject the truth. It will harden them in their unbelief so that when they are condemned by God on judgment day, it will be obvious that they are getting what they deserve, that their condemnation is just. It is right. And their end is the same as the end of the one that they follow, which we see in verse 8, that the Lord Jesus will kill them with the breath of his mouth and bring them to nothing by the appearance of his coming. As we saw in chapter 1 and verse 9, these are those who will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord. This is the deserved end of those who catch a glimpse of Christ and then turn away from him in disappointment or disgust. And you might be asking right about now, is there any good news? Is there any grace? Is there any comfort in this passage? Well, maybe not directly, but I do think that, yes, we can find grace and comfort in this passage, uh, implied at least in, in at least three ways. There are more, but I'm going to mention three. First, Paul's not just giving the church information here. It's an implied warning. All right, he's saying deceptions will come, so don't be deceived by them. No matter what you may see or hear, even if you see something that looks miraculous, if it's pointing you anywhere but Jesus, it is from Satan. So don't be deceived. Hold fast to the truth of the gospel. This is a warning that we need to hear because these, these rebels, those who are deceived by the man of lawlessness, they're, it's not as though they're all going to be just non-religious people, atheists, proclaimed atheists who never believe. When the man of lawlessness comes, he will come deceiving many of those who sit in the seats of churches just like this one. People who have a form of godliness, but have actually rejected Christ in their hearts. So this warning is a warning that we need, and this warning is grace. The warnings of God are gracious. The warnings of God are gracious. But do you receive them that way? Or do you consider a sermon like this one to be harsh, not gospel-centered? You should instead receive this kind of message, this kind of text in Scripture, as a word of warning from a kind, gracious, loving Father. Oh, what kind of father doesn't warn his children about danger? This is what a good father does. So receive it. Listen to it. Don't imagine that you are above being deceived. Stay rooted in the word. Be eager to love the truth. Be eager to confess and repent 
when you've found that you have a love for unrighteousness, confess it. Repent of it quickly. So there's a grace in that warning. And second, there's a word of comfort here in that these verses aren't talking about just every Christian when they describe God sending a powerful deception. Paul is speaking to those who have apostatized, those who tasted something of the goodness of God, found it bitter in their mouths, and spit it out. He's talking about those who have evaluated the gospel and ultimately decided it's lacking. These are those who have actively, knowingly, intentionally rebelled against God. These are the ones that have gone past the point of no return so that God enacts his judgment on them in advance. And for these, when the man of lawlessness appears, they won't know that he's the Antichrist because they're deceived. And, and even if they were told, hey, that's, that's the Antichrist. This is what we're told about. Do you see what he's doing? It matches what we were warned about. They're not going to believe it because they've embraced the lie. But for those who truly love Christ, God will reveal the man of lawlessness for who he is. That's what uh, Jason talked about last week. When he talks about the man of lawlessness passively being revealed, God is going to reveal them to his people. So if you love the truth, you won't be taken in by him. You won't be deceived. The minds of unbelievers have been blinded by Satan, but God has shown the light of the gospel truth into the hearts of believers. And so if you haven't rejected Christ, this passage, it should sober you, but it shouldn't terrify you. And lastly, the good news of the gospel is implied at the end of verse 10, which says that those who are perishing did not love the truth and so be saved. Well, what's implied there? It's implied that if you do love the truth of the gospel, you will be saved. And you need not fear the deception of the man of lawlessness, nor anyone like him who comes before him, because you are kept safe in the truth of Jesus. And if your desire is not for unrighteousness, but for the righteousness of God, then your deserved end is not to be condemned, but to be saved when Jesus returns. As Jesus told us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why are they blessed? Why are they blessed? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As chapter one of this letter says, when the Lord returns, far from being terrified and condemned, you will be glorified in him. You will marvel at him when he returns. Love the truth of the gospel and you will be saved. And here in just a few minutes, we're going to take communion. And communion, this meal that Christians share together every week, it's a celebration of that reality. That simply by trusting in the gospel, believing the truth about Jesus, we will be saved. It shows us, reminds us, that that salvation comes through the cross. These communion elements, this little piece of bread, it represents the body of Christ that was beaten and pierced, hung on a cross for us sinners. The juice that we take, it reminds us of the blood of Jesus that was poured out to make atonement for our sins. 
And this communion time is only for baptized believers. Those who have professed faith in Christ, had that profession affirmed by a a church through baptism. We invite all, whether you're here for the first time or you've been a member for 11 years, to come and take this communion meal. But this is for believers. And so if you aren't believing in Jesus, we ask that you not come. But we, we don't come to take communion because we've earned the right to. We actually come because we've recognized that none of us have the right to come to God. None of us have the ability to come to God apart from the atoning work of Christ. We're all sinners. We're all in need of grace. The good news is that Jesus came into the earth to save sinners. And so if, if you haven't put your faith in him, you've heard the truth today. As Psalm 95 says, today, if you have heard the voice of God, don't harden your heart. Open your heart to the love of the truth. Believe in the gospel. And if you want to, if you just have questions about that, if you want to hear more about that, if you want to talk with one of the pastors, um, I'll be down here in front um, while during the communion time. I welcome you to come. You can grab one of the other pastors or any Christian that you may know here would love to talk with you. If maybe you don't feel comfortable doing that here this morning, you can fill out one of the connection cards and just let us know that you'd like to talk with us this week. You can drop that in one of the boxes in the back before you head out today. We would love to talk with you about what it means to be saved, to know that we are kept from this kind of deception in Jesus Christ. So please reach out to us. And for those of you who will take communion this morning, uh, the way that we do that here at Pioneer Ridge Church is I'll invite you to stand in just a moment. You'll exit to your left. You'll come up here to the front where these tables are. Uh, these have the communion elements in a cup. Just grab one of those. Um, there's gluten-free here on your far left if you would like that. But take that back to your seat. We encourage you to, to take it with your family or maybe just if you're here by yourself, you can, you can pray by yourself. Meditate on what it means that God has saved you a sinner. And then take it in faith, believing that when Christ returns, you will indeed be saved, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Christ has done. So I invite you to stand, and for those who should, come and receive communion.